Matt, I don't know if you've ever heard this podcast, but it's a fucking train wreck. Yeah, I've heard it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Welcome to the next episode of Pancom Podcast. This is the special edition called the Zoom Zoom Room. Then we're going to put some bad porn music behind that. This is out of control. <laughs> so on this episode of Pancom Podcast, we are joined by one Matt Hinckley, who actually would be joining us probably via the Zoom Zoom Room regardless because he is in Orlando, uh, proprietor of Hinckley's Meats. Uh, I have not had the pleasure of eating anything that he sells, but it looks super nice. Uh, oh, yeah. So I will leave it to you, Mike, to give a little more detail on what Matt does and how the two of you even know each other, which I don't know. All I know is that Matt and I occasionally tweet at each other about MMA. Yeah. And, you know, the tweet and the likes and the re-things and the, all the stuff, all the Twitter things. Twitter universe is an interesting place. Matt, thank you for coming on the show, sir. Thanks for having me, bro. It's good to see you, man. Um, interestingly enough, when Matt was actually in Miami, we did not know each other, right? I think we had met maybe once, but we didn't really, like, know each other. Yeah, once or twice, yeah. Yeah, so I know of Matt because Matt was the chef de cuisine at Michael's Genuine Food and Drink during, uh, I would say, like, one of the peak periods of that 13-year establishment right what years were that was that i was uh i was a sue at genuine and then went as the cdc over to harry's and opened up first harry's but yeah i was at genuine for uh, i don't know two or three years and then opened up harry's um maybe two and a half years at genuine and a year at harry's or something like that um that it, it seems like it was all one real long fucking day <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember there being a break. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of people that worked for Michael said, have said the same thing. It seems like a very, very long, long couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good, though, man. I have zero regrets. Man, it's one of my favorite jobs I've ever had. Same. Same. I said the same when I worked at Cyprus. I feel very – I felt – I still feel like that was one of the most important points of my career. So let's get into the backstory of what makes Matt Hinckley tick. <laughs> I, just, I gotta wait before we get into that so my fiance had never like really um like she had never met you i had spoken about you a couple times and I, when we went up to orlando i was like we have to go here and then um when we went we bought a bunch of charcuterie and whatever she was like man how long have you guys known each other i was like this is actually the first time we've ever met <laughs> like, <laughs> like, but we had spoken so much through the, all the social media things and we had talked about food and you know all that stuff and I, I very much like admire the work that you've done um like no one really like shows a lot of love for that charcuterie world and i think that what you do is so special and uh i remember uh what was it like two years ago that you were featured in the times as like one of the kind of like those um gift ideas for like the season was that two years ago yeah yeah no, we get. Uh, I think it was uh, 2017. We were in uh, uh, the New York Times Holiday Gift Buying Guide, um, and that that's a crazy story in its own right, man. Because we were, I was doing just this uh, test market 
in, in Orlando. I just had a deli case in the friend's shop uh, just to kind of feel out, um, you know, w what the market was going to uh, bear. And, you know, we, I was, I had a lot of chefs that, you know, I was getting demand from. So I was, you know, going down all these wormholes, trying to figure out how to uh, get USDA. And, um, you know, I ended up settling on a Florida Department of Agriculture model because it was a lot less paperwork and a lot less easier or a lot easier to get off the ground. Uh, so when I shifted that model and said, you know, we're going to start uh, shipping the stuff as well. Um, I put it out on Twitter or somewhere. I think it was Twitter that said that, you know, we're shipping nationwide. And uh, it was Sam Sifton, like, um, sent me a direct message asking, you know, hey, what's the most popular box? I was like, fuck, man, you're the first guy out the gate. <laughs> like, I don't know, you know? So I, I, sent him a, I sent him a box of random stuff. And then uh, a couple weeks later, I uh, got a call to send a box in for the uh, senior food editor uh, for the holiday gift guide to be photographed. I sent that box in. Um, and I thought I was just sending it in for, like, consideration. And then... Um, like a week before Black Friday, uh, a customer called me saying that they saw it online, um, that it was in the gift guide. And, uh, you know, that's how I found out. So maybe a, a, a week, it got, and I was just producing this stuff by myself, man. So like about a week uh, leading up to Black Friday, I started getting a little crazy, the amount of words I was getting in. And then when it hit the, the print on Black Friday, it went fucking bananas. I was getting, like, orders for, like, 60 cases Holy a day. Shit. So, uh, you know, that that's probably uh, the, the, the longest and hardest I worked was that, like, week leading up to Black Friday through probably mid-January. Like, I, I couldn't have worked any more unless I slept less. I had a couple people helping me. Uh, you know, pack boxes and stuff, but I didn't have time to teach anyone else how to do it. You know, it was just fucking 18 hour days for like six weeks straight trying to bang product out. Uh, it was a real, you know, trial by fire. A lot of businesses, small businesses got to, you know, put a shit ton of work in to try to figure out how to make the phone ring. You know what I mean? When you first open, you want to be busy. Like, what can I do to make the phone ring? And you don't give a lot of thought to, you know, what are you going to do if the phone doesn't stop mm. ringing? So I had a lot of weird problems to figure out for being new. Um, but that that's what gave us the, uh, the sort of boost in the beginning. Um, and then, uh, you know, once the spot opened up in East End Market, where our home is now, I shifted that model again because, you know, when we first started out, we were using a lot of local farms and our plan was to keep everything local. And then uh, when we hit the times, it was like, if I had boxes going to LA, New York, it was all over the fucking place. And, you know, my UPS bill was through the roof. So when the spot opened in East End Market, we just shifted the model again so we could bring it back close and, and you know, be able to sell a pound of bacon at a time to people that lived in the same zip code rather than, you know, $150 box of bacon to someone that lives in Seattle. Mm. So you hadn't sold the box yet, and the first person who hit you up was Sam Sifton. Yeah. <laughs> That's some fucking crazy shit, man. <laughs> I mean, talk about like, you know, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned uh, people think about how to make the phone ring, but then they don't know how to make it stop ringing or how to deal with it when it, when it, stop, uh, when it 
continuously rings. You ever um, read that article? And I forget where it was, but how um, a burger that won best burger in the country, that article destroyed the restaurant? Oh, yeah. I've heard a lot of those stories. Like people get on like Oprah and stuff like yeah. that. Get that product shot out by Ofer and it crushes the business. <laughs> That's like so like counter everything we are. Like please just come, and then it's like no, stop coming, please. Yeah, it's a blessing and a curse, man, for sure. So let's go. I mean, let's uh, rewind all the way back to uh, Little Hinkley. So, how, what got you started in the whole food thing to begin with? Um, I think I kind of fell into it, man. Um, I, I my first job in around food, I was uh 17 16 16 years old i was working at a little mom and pop pizza shop uh in orlando here called dino's and um you know it it was uh you know it was pretty loose i mean there was you know they they opened up the taps for everybody it's the same shit in every restaurant you know what i mean the, like once it closed they opened up the taps um so when you're 16 years old and you got free beer, it's a pretty good, you know, <laughs> that's an incentive to, uh, to stick with the job. Um, but, I, you know, I left that and, and, and I would bounce in and out of like, uh, you know, quote unquote, real jobs, um, you know, trying to be like, a, you know, a professional or whatever, working in a cubicles. And I just hated it. And I liked that, um, you know, there was a freedom that you had in the, in the kitchen, uh, or in a restaurant in general that, that you didn't have in those other, uh, more corporate environments. You could go into work and, you know, tell a dirty joke and not worry about losing your job. It was a lot, you know, it was, it was a kitchens that, you know, Bourdain wrote about, uh, back in the day and, you know, it's changed and it's morphed a lot now, but I think that's kind of what uh, attracted it to me or attracted me to it. And I started, um, in the front of the house. So, you know, I'll go really try to hang on to these real jobs. And then, uh, you know, I would inevitably flake out because I hated the work. And then, you know, there was always the restaurants where you could go like bartend and make rent at the end of the month because everything was paid in cash, you know. So it was just this um, sort of easy. It was easy to fall back on. But uh, I think after about 10 years of doing it, I was like, man, this is just I like the people. I like the environment. Uh, I just liked being around food. So I wanted to figure out like, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I knew I didn't want to wait tables. Um, so I, I just started trying to figure out how to get back into the kitchens and, uh, just became a real fucking nerd, man. I just bought like, you know, the culinary Institute of America's uh, textbooks, uh, the Cordon Bleu's textbooks, and just started nerding out on like all the, the basics and the science and, um, you know, I, I got into uh, a lot of remote kitchens where there wasn't a whole lot of expectation. Uh, and I was able to play with the food, um, you know, learn a lot of it by, you know, trial and error. Um, but I think the real the real sort of uh, school for me was at, at in Miami at Genuine. Like that, that place is a grind, man. And if you could do a couple of years there, um, you know, you could go anywhere. You know, it's, it's, uh, that place was an animal that taught me, uh, taught me a lot, you know. Can I ask you the, when you said like those random cubicle jobs, what were some of those? Because for me, I worked at Sears in the, the, uh, 
I forgot what the department was called. It was like, you know, where all the lawnmowers and shit were at. And then I also worked at, um, I worked the ground, I was a groundskeeper in college also, which was uh, horrifying. That job fucking sucks. So what were some of the jobs that made you want to go back to the kitchen? Oh, man, I've done, I've had so many jobs, bro. <laughs> uh, I, I think that probably the most soul-sucking jobs for me were the ones where um, you just, like, like you go to work and nobody really wanted to be there. You know what I mean? And, you know, I've had them in, in a bunch of different industries, in the auto industry, in, um, like, you know, I, I've done all kind of different sales jobs and stuff, but, like, you know, I never really felt like in any of them, like when I was at a restaurant, there was an energy there that, um, you know, it, maybe not everybody wanted to be there, but there was a camaraderie that's built through suffering. <laughs> I think it's that's, that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. Fucking trenched together. And, and, you know, there was this bond that was created by suffering. that didn't really exist in the same way that it existed in some of these other jobs and i found it kind of attractive it's like you know what this sucks you don't like it i don't like it but we both got to do it so it, it created these bonds with people and you know there's people that i was in restaurants with um you know 20 years ago and and not really like high-end restaurants but you know, the bond that was created in like six months and those restaurants, I still I still keep in touch with those people. But like, I don't know any other job that I had that wasn't in a restaurant industry that I've, that I've kept in touch with with anybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? But like very, very, very few people. But for some reason, the people that you meet in the restaurant, it seems like you develop these bonds with these people that can, you know, they last a lifetime just over, you know, just working in the shit with people on the line, man, it creates a bond that's, um, I, that's, uh, I, I feel like it, it, it's like relative to a pirate ship. And speaking of pirate ship, here's Brittany. Hi, Brittany. Hey, chef. How are you? Amazing. This, Cheers. You're amazing. I, I, we should do a podcast about PD. I know. Yeah. I, I feel like the, the restaurant industry and you know, it's, I always go back to my days at Applebee's when I was like 18, 19 years old and it was just like, man, this is like so much fun. And it was such a shit show, right? I mean, it was like, it was such a train wreck. I mean, talk about like food with like very little expectations, you know? It's just slang and bang. But everyone's like having a good time. And then this is back when like people could smoke in the restaurant. And then like, you know, at the end of the shift, everyone's like in the smoking section, smoking a cigarette, drinking like a ginger ale and... And gin out of like an Applebee's to go cup. And it's just like, it does just so much like, and it goes back to like all the shit that Bourdain talked about, like this underbelly of a community, but it's really everyone comes from, I'm not going to say like a fucked up background, but it's just, they find a, uh, something in common with the people around them. You know, like, um, it's just, it reminds me of a pirate ship, you know, like it reminds me of like everyone and then they like to go out afterwards and drink. And it's just, it feels much more like, almost like a, people have a different type of bond, like you said. And when, what I've seen and experienced in other industries, it's, it's just much more like system-oriented, black and white. Like, you know, I come, I do my job, I go home. And what, what I really enjoy is my weekend, you know? I really enjoy, like, 
happy hour. And then for, I don't know, I really enjoy like 8 o'clock on a Friday when there's 45 tickets on the board and you're just getting fucking crushed, right? And then you work your way out of it. And it's like, well, we fucking did some shit tonight. Like, we, we crushed this shit, you know? And it's, everyone gets that same like adrenaline rush and it's like a bunch of people kind of like on the same page, you know? And when uh, you mentioned working at Genuine, like when you really cut your teeth there, like anyone who can work at Genuine and do the numbers that they do and the quality of food that they have is, it's impressive. You know, like that restaurant, I remember when I was at Cyprus, it was like, it was crazy the numbers that they did there. So when you go through that and you experience that with other people, I mean, it's almost like you're, you're going to war every day. You know, it's a different type of bond that you have with your fellow coworker than you do I feel like when you're working from cubicle to cubicle, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, where were we? Where were we before this? Oh, we're talking about young Matt. Young Matt Hinckley. So then, um, are you from Orlando originally? No, I, I was born up in near Niagara Falls. Uh, my family moved down here in the uh, mid-80s. Uh, and I, I hung out kind of like... Uh, I was here through through school, a little bit of college, man. But um, I really wanted to to travel, um, and you know, I I bounced on a lot of uh, I I did for about five years, just kind of uh, randomly um, living out of a backpack, traveling around um, anywhere that I could find work. It was like, um, you know, it was before there was any like real. Uh, it was difficult to do with social media. So I was like, you know, just doing um, searches on, you know, Yahoo or whatever the fuck the search engine was at the time to try to find, you know, resorts and stuff. And, um, you know, I would email resume back and forth. And, uh, you know, I, I was, I was willing to just get on an airplane, you know what I mean? At pretty short notice. And, uh, you know, that put me in a lot of cool spots, man. I spent, you know, summer, in Nicaragua, uh, I got to travel around Central America a little bit. I went to uh, Alaska, three or four wow. seasons I did in Alaska. Wow. Um, I was in New Zealand a couple wow. seasons, maybe, maybe a year there altogether. Bounced around Australia for a while. Uh, East Africa, I spent a year. Um, all just like cooking, man, you know, figuring it out along the way, picking up recipes and making friends. Um, and, you know, I, I did that for five years. And then, uh, you know, I got, uh, I think I, I, you know, you, you, you always miss doing, you, you miss the thing that you don't have. Right. And, you know, I was living like a turtle for like five years where I had all my shit like on my back and, I uh, missed having a place that I could sort of call home. So came to Miami and, uh, you know, I, I've, I posted up there because I have a lot of fr uh, family down in South Florida, uh, like Lauderdale. And then, um, you know, all my family is here in Orlando. Uh, so I did a couple years in, in Miami, um, you know, with, with Michael and then uh, bounced up to Alaska. We did a huge road trip with my wife um, up to Alaska. And then, uh, you know, we had an offer at, with Box Park back in miami again oh, yes. and uh came we uh drove back down to do that uh and then when that uh didn't pan out uh we you know headed up to new york city i did a couple of years there and then uh you know i can move back to orlando to open up the 
you know, fancy to start the meets. When you were traveling, I mean, that's like a lot of, that's a mixed bag, Alaska, New Zealand, East Africa. Yeah. What are some of the things that like really stuck out to you in all of that? Like some of those, I don't know, different food cultures that, I mean, I'm born and raised down here in South Florida. So like, what is one of the things that sticks out that would be so different from what you experienced down here? Down well, here? I mean, a lot of those places were pretty remote. So, um, you know, when I was in Nicaragua, I was on a little island, a uh, little corn island uh, off the uh, Caribbean coast. Like uh, it's like a five hour boat ride from Bluefields. Um, and, you know, it was like uh, I had a boat captain that would go out, take people fishing and just, you know, there was a garden on the property and between, you know, the dinner was whatever that guy yanked out of the ocean and whatever the other guy pulled out of the garden. And it was like, you, you know, you, you're going to look at those things for three months and, and try to figure out different shit to do with it. You know what I mean? So, you know, it, it you know, with a basic uh, foundation of, you know, the science of you know culinary arts that you know you're just going in and like staring at a plantain for three fucking months trying to figure out something that hasn't been done with it you know what i mean and uh you know so like i i've kind of found that same experience in 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 all those places one way or another you know in alaska it was a ton of like salmon and you know pacific northwest foods when i was in africa was, i was in a spice island so it was like a different perspective on spices and i would get them you know, in an unrefined way, they looked a lot different. You know, it's like huge strips of cinnamon bark, you know, right off a tree rather than the little rolled up, you know, fancy shit that we get here. So um, I got to see things just from a you know, different perspective. In New Zealand, it was all, um, you know, some like fruits and vegetables I wasn't really familiar with. A lot of the fish I hadn't heard of before. So, um, you know, it was stuff that you see all the time maybe fish and chips or whatever but if you're doing with hapoka or terakihi or some other uh fish that nobody knows what the fuck it is you know what i mean it makes it a little bit more interesting when you're over there um but you know every everywhere i go there's uh there's something to be learned and and you're and if you keep your mind open you you know and you don't let your ego in the way it, it's pretty crazy the people that can teach it to you you know what i mean and i learned a lot of uh I learned a lot of crazy recipes from, you know, everything from like old Swahili women in, in Africa to like crazy redneck fishermen in Alaska and, and everything in between. If you're open to, um, to, to listening to people, man, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot you can learn from the dishwasher, right? You hear that all the time. I mean, I think that the truest statement ever is that you can learn something from everyone in your kitchen, you know, like for any sure. chef. Any chef that walks into his kitchen and thinks that he knows it all, I think is already at, I mean, he's already at a loss, you know, like yeah. there's so many things I feel, especially now I feel very like proud that our kitchen is like, it's a collaborative effort. Like, Hey, we have these things. What do we think about these ideas? What do we think about this? And what do we think about that? And it feels more organic instead of like forced, you know? And I just, I fucking love that. And I, it leads me to another thing, just talking about uh, making a dish with what's presented to you instead of kind of like the culture in which we live in, which is like, um, I don't know, restaurants as a whole, I would say 90% probably more. It's all about like, I need arugula, so I'm going to buy the crappy arugula from the produce company that comes in a bag and so on and so forth. And then this dish needs to live on the menu for 
I don't know, seven years or whatever the fuck it is, and you're serving out of season X, Y, and Z all the time, I think that really sets younger cooks up to not be prepared to really learn how to cook, you know, because, yeah, you, I mean, ideally, you would know how to sear a piece of fish, which probably, they probably don't, but, you know, like, ideally, you would know, like, the basic parts, but that, that, that idea of taking what's given to you in a season and coming up with a dish from that, I feel like that's so lost in today's world, you know, like, especially, like, down here, because everyone complains that in the summertime Miami is like barren and there's no vegetables I'm like yeah but there's a lot of other shit that you could do stuff with you know and I I feel like every year I it gets worse and worse because you're continuing to use the corn that comes from the Midwest and the Andy boy romaine that comes from California and all this shit instead of giving someone an opportunity to really like okay this is in season this is at its peak this is like when it's really fucking good what do you want to do with it? They're at a loss. They don't know what to do with it, you know? I feel like I really learned a lot of that when I worked for Michael, you know, like... Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, when I worked for Norman as well, but Norman, it was a little more structured because the food was... I, I don't know if it was structured. It was outside the box and then, like, a lot of components to a dish. So I, it wasn't really about seasonality. It was more about creativity, you know, when we when I worked for Michael, it was more about like, okay, this is what's in season for the next three months. What are we going to do with this? You know, so I don't know. It's it's interesting because it, for just from what I'm hearing, it sounds like that shit's kind of like ingrained into your being, right? Like, this is what's in season. This is what what I have. This is what's local. This is what we're going to do. And now I feel like that's it's the only way that I think. But so many people don't think that way. You know, and I think that's why a lot of restaurants suck. I don't know if that's bad for me to say, but it's just fucking true. No, yeah, I think if people get, uh, you know, caught up in it and, and uh, they, I think a, a mistake for a lot of young cooks is they just try to do too much shit. You know, I, and I think that I, you know, I certainly was a victim of that. And I, and I, I remember when I was at Michael's too, um, uh, I remember Ferran Andrea came in. Uh, and, the orange. And. Michael said the story about the orange. Well, a kumquat, like with nothing else. <laughs> and I was like, are you serious? And Michael was like, yeah, he doesn't want to eat his own fucking foams and bubbles. He wants fucking good food. So we cooked him like a whole fish. We sent him bowls of kumquats that had a good time. You know what I mean? And and I think that, it, you know, it, you know, between sourcing and like just recognizing when you've got stuff that's like, you know, when you – you know, we'd get shit that still came, you know, warm from the sun, you know, and uh, when, when you have access to those kind of ingredients, like you, you got to let them sort of do their own talking. You know what I mean? When you start fucking around with curries and like, you know, drowning out flavors of those things that you're really doing, a, you're being disingenuous to the, uh, you know, to the kumquat, bro. Yeah, the kumquat. I, Michael said that story when he came on the podcast also, like. You know, he sent Veron Adria kumquats, and it's just like everyone wants to, like, um, impress. But I think that's a way of being very impressive, just saying who you yeah. are and, like, not being scared of who you are. I think as you as you get older and you become more confident, um, you're not scared of being who you are. You know, like, I, I always talk about the evolution of Ariette because 
it's kind of a lot of like my own evolution. At the beginning, I was scared about I wanted to do this, that, and the next. And after a while, I was like, fuck it, just be who you are and what you believe in. And if people don't like it, I mean, then you're fucked. But if if you're going to go down, you got to go down in what you believe in. And I think that so often, especially in, I mean, today's climate is super fucked. But, so let's talk about last year's climate. Just it's uh, people always wanted to just outdo everyone else instead of just being who they were. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's uh, why I, um, why you for me, I, I like, I love who you are because you're like, fuck it. I'm just, this is who I am. And if you don't like it, fuck you. I don't care. This is what I do. And it's super clean and it's super delicious and it is what it is. And it's like, to me, that's so much stronger than everyone that's just trying to like, well, I'm going to outdo what that guy did. And I'm going to outdo what that. I mean, who gives a fuck? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate the compliment. But yeah, I think that, and it takes a long time, I think, to figure out what you are. You know what I mean? Because, you know, you're going to spend a long time just getting through uh, the basics and learning how, you know, how, how to make shit taste good. You know, and it's a big mistake. We used to get kids coming to the restaurant all the time. You know, it's like media ready on the resume. And it's like, <laughs> you know, they come in with the fucking Le Cordon Bleu neckerchief. Like media ready. It's like, what do you mean you're media ready? So like, well, I took the class in school. It's like, what? You're not making a chicken stock yet. You're fucking media ready. You got a long way to go. Wait. But I think once you get comfortable with, uh, you know, the fact that you're gonna suck for a little while, and you just gotta grind, and you're gonna like learn along the way and pick stuff up and be humble about growth. Um, you know, you. You, you that style will come out but i think it's something that if you really rush in the beginning of your career it, it's uh it can re it does so much more harm than good man you're just mm. kind of blinding yourself can, can we, i ask um, you wait just because you brought it up about uh what matt does sort of illustrating who he is and it being clean can we like for people who have not had a chance to to try it what are like some examples of items or whatever like the part of the experience of engaging with your food that that you feel like reflects who you are in that way you know i connect with matt a lot because we both like pineapple on pizza yeah that's it that's the ticket <laughs> <laughs> that separates the curves from the way right there oh man Nah, it's a lot of we get a lot of heat on on the social medias because me and Matt are very pro pineapple on pizza. That's the only way to be, man. It's a it's the mark of a refined palate, sir. <laughs> that was uh, a great. That's a great answer to my question. <laughs> oh man, sorry. No, but really, um, I think that charcuterie in and of itself is kind of like a lost art form. You know, so when I look at like Matt Hinckley's cuisine and I, I think it goes very much deeper than just um, the charcuterie that you do. But it's like it's charcuterie is all about precision thought and like just um, uh, technique, you know, like and, and those like that patience and that technique is so it's just in today's world, it's fucking lost. You know what I mean? So, anyways, I'm sure you could talk about it a little bit more, Matt, but it, it's 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 something that in today's world we, we just don't see much anymore, right? 
Yeah, you don't see it, man. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, that that I think that kind of defines us a bit. I want, you know, I'm I always say I'm more interested in uh, what's on the plate, you know, hundred years ago than I am in the next like, you know, foam trend or you know, sphere or whatever. Like, I, you know, I think as a, as a culture, we need to, to get back to, uh, to the table and, and, and start connecting more with, uh, what's on the plate. And, um, you know, I think for me, charcuterie is a cool way to do that. I gravitate toward the parts department. I like using the off cuts. Uh, I like using off commodity proteins. If I can get my hands on boar, rabbit, loaf, uh, elk, you know, I like, I like working with that stuff. It's like, you know, it's in, it's, you know, for a chef, like if you, if you're, uh, trying to pay attention to where your, um, where your product's coming from, and there's nobody that's like, I don't know of anyone that's factory farming elk. So I don't have to do any yeah. fucking work. <laughs> you know right. I mean? if, it's, if it's an elk or an antelope or, you know, some, uh, something that's not, like typical of what you're going to find in a Publix, man. It's just that much less work I got to do to know that, uh, hey, this is uh, this is probably a, a good choice. You know what I mean? I still do a little bit of the research, but I feel like a lot of it's, uh, you know, you know, I'm not I'm not worried about, you know, whether uh, an elk is being stuck in a confinement crate. You know what I mean? Right, right. Let me ask you the, just because of your location, like Orlando. It's interesting because I, I found a lot of good food in Orlando, you know, and it wasn't like um, I. People don't generally look at Orlando and say, well, that's a food city. I've never had a bad meal in Orlando, me personally. I mean, I've only been like overnights or a couple days or whatever it is. But how does the community react to uh, what you do there? Um, I, we have a strong uh, customer base uh, at the shop. Like, you know, when this whole thing hit with with uh covid and we switched to uh you know contactless payment people could you know order in uh online um prepay and then you know come and pick it up or have us bring it out to the car um like it like when the names like i I recognize them all you know it's all the names that i saw over and over and over again um and you know if you're cooking good food like you know people you're going to attract people and they'll be loyal because, um, you know, Orlando's got, there's so, you know, it's, it's, um, there's good places to eat here. I think it, they, they get a bad rap because of the parks and, you know, it's, it's a great, uh, you know, spot to open a chain. This, this town loves chains, but, you know, if you look in, in the, uh, you know, in the cracks, you can find some real cool spots to eat. Um, and it, there's a community that'll support them. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, the, I think people appreciate that you're trying to do something different. And, uh, you know, we, we've had, we've had people, you know, we've, we've had great customers, man. We've got a great base and, uh, you know, I, I, uh, it, it's more than I expected it to be. Mm. And do you see like online sales have increased or is that something that, you kind of adapted as a business model? Yeah, well, we had the, um, the infrastructure already in place because of uh, the, um, you know, when 
when we were shipping online, uh, all boxes all over the country, that all still existed. So uh, when when this thing hit, like we just shifted the models. Like, okay, well, I'll just change the shipping structure on the website so I'm not shipping to like Seattle. I'll just shipping it, you know, inside city limits. If you're within 10 miles, we'll just bring it to your house. So, um, you know, it gave me a real head start that, you know, I didn't have to go build a website or figure out how to, to to make it work with my POS or whatever right. else. It was just like, okay, guess we're shipping again. You know, you know, it's an hour's worth of work on, on the website and then we're up and going again. So um, we are really lucky uh, with that, that we didn't have, you know, that was a big scramble for people to try to stand out because sure. like, you know, whether you're, you know, a sushi spot or fine dining or, uh, you know, catering weddings, it didn't matter what your game was before this hit, when it hit, everybody's doing the same thing they're all, sure. all competing for the same food dollar so any any advantage you could have to to kind of get yourself to the front of that pack or stand out at all is um you know it made a big difference do you feel well now that we're talking about the rona um i mean i i know that here in in miami it's a fucking train wreck i mean it's like everything is it's a disaster but what has been the overall kind of like vibe in Orlando? And I mean, I know that you were set up, but what about the rest of the community? Um, it's been rough, man. I think that, uh, you know, the East, you know, East Orlando, West Orlando is it, is it, it's like two different cities, man. And, you know, West Orlando is all parks and it's all transient and it's all people you know it's a beehive people are coming into west orlando for like a week and they're gone and they're coming from all over the world um in east orlando you know there's a, you know winter park college park Thornton park all the park bubbles um you know all the you know like our customers all you know we recognize their names when this happens so that, you know we have a loyal you know group of supporters and you know those restaurants are are struggling um but out west, where they're just dependent on tourist traffic, man, are, you know, they're going to have a real, real rough time with yeah. it. Uh, I, I expect a lot of them to uh, close because there's, I mean, there's nothing out there. It's just all, uh, you know, hotels and people that service those hotels, you know, and parks, you know. So how, how do you feel about the, the parks reopening? You know, I think it's, I think it's, uh, probably a dangerous move um you know i it, it it i find it irritating man that you know i think that i tweeted this out the other day it's like i i would understand if if a small brewery had to close uh and 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 disney had to close okay but uh, I, I don't understand how like disney can be open but you're going to tell like these small places that they got to shut down and the only thing that makes sense of that is is like dirty, you know, pop, you know, politics, man. It's just money. Um, so, like right now, the, the breweries can't like uh, service guests, but you got Walt Disney World is open for business, and that makes zero sense. Oh, it just it just shows that money money greases, right? Like money money moves. You know, I mean, uh, I I was talking to someone today. I was like, I don't. I just expedited service in an empty dining room and that's that's fine but I still don't understand why Disney is open if I'm expediting in an empty dining room and I understand the gravity of what's going on I get it you know 
for me, the and I've said it a million times, the safety of my patrons and my staff is my number one concern. But why does that not ring the same for like a Disney World? I don't fucking get it. I mean, if anything, you're you're putting more people in danger at that point because of what that model is like in comparison to what our model is like. You know what I'm saying? Because like you're leaving humans to just be humans in an open space and not sitting and not telling them that they can only have so many to a table. You're making them get in line to a fucking ride that who knows what's happened on that ride before. I don't know. It's just it seems like really fucked to me. The whole the whole thing seems pretty fucked. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's, um, you know, it, it's uh, like I. I I, I don't get it. it. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like, like I said, I would understand if, uh, you know, if if they were both closed or they were both open. But I don't understand how the the small guy's got to be shut down while Disney's open. That that to me doesn't make any sense at all, um, except for money, money, you know. And it's like a, it seems like you know if all, all the big players are uh, you know the ones that that are writing these checks out to uh you know writing a generous campaign contribution is the ones that are getting to play right now and uh you know it's not a i don't think it's a fair uh i don't think it's a level playing field uh for small independent restaurants um you know i think that uh we've had really uh a, a rough go at it you know i think it's a you know real uh failure on uh, on behalf of uh elected officials both sides you know what i mean like every side all sides both sides have uh have done a pretty horrible job at putting out information at uh taking you know and i get i understand completely why i can understand both arguments i understand why people want to stay home i understand the people who say hey member i get both of them um but uh like I also what I don't get is like if you're being told to stay at home and then you got nothing coming in, like if I think it would be a different thing. I think if we had like a UBI or something in place, it's like you you stay home, you can't go to work, but here's a little money for you to get diapers and rice and beans, right? Right. Versus like no, you're gonna stay at home, but you're not gonna get shit. Right. Then I can see how people be like, nah, I think I'm just gonna go to work. You right. Know what I, mean? I, got, I gotta do I gotta do something. Right. You're either going to break the law and you're going to go open your business or you're going to break the law and you're going to go steal some shit because you're definitely not going to let your family go hungry because some asshole in a suit in another state told you you can't go, you know, provide. And if that's not coming from, uh, you know, from from the government, which is essentially the people, you know, I mean, government doesn't generate money. They're just distributing our money. But there's nothing coming in to, to people that need it. Then, uh, like, I understand both sides to say, like, you know, the, the more we're out in public, the more this thing is spreading. But I also understand people saying, look, if I'm not out in public, if I'm not out here making a living, like, you know, I got hungry kids at home. You know what right. I mean? So it's a real it's a real tough, uh, you know, water to navigate. But and I don't I don't have the answer, but I'm a fucking cook. You know what I mean? I voted for someone who's supposed to have the answer. And I haven't seen shit from either side that's a good answer. So uh, I'm just going to throw this out there. It doesn't have to be something we follow up on right now. But 
worth noting. I think you might be the first guest we've had on the podcast who's a member of the Yang Gang. Uh, <laughs> so that might be worth talking about at some point now that we're in the political portion of this show. What so, is that? That's what I knew would be the question. It's a great opportunity for, if you want to get into that, Matt, uh, we can. No, I, I, I like the, a lot of the ideas that Yang brought to the table. I think. Oh, this is a person. I think yeah. he got <laughs> Andrew Andrew Yang ran ah, for president as a Democrat. I All thought right. he brought some, some good ideas to the table, man. Um, I thought he was kind of, uh, you know, um, sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, moderate. I don't, I, you know, I think that if you're swinging too far left or too far right, you're just alienating too many people and you need somebody in the middle. I would have liked to see Yang. I like to see third party get more of a representation with like, you know, ranked choice voting or some other, you know, measure in place that breaks up this duopoly or at least, you know, levels the playing field a little bit. But, you know, the ideas that Yang had about, you know, privatizing data and, and uh, you know, putting a UBI in place, I think, you know, it's, you know, if, if anything, it, it, his campaign brought it up to, uh, you know, it brought that idea uh, to the table because, you know, I, I think we're on a uh, like a ticking time bomb with employment. I think uh, the numbers that we got, you know, from from COVID like a month ago to when the unemployment rate uh, skyrocketed to, uh, what was it, 30 million people or something, some crazy number. Like, I think that's all coming down the pipeline uh, with automation and robotics is, is uh, you know, as things become, you know, less dependent on uh, human labor and more dependent on, you know, machinery, like jobs are just going to go away, man. You know, like, and uh, if there's not some plan in place, um, we're gonna have a lot of problems, and uh, I don't know that any anyone has really addressed that uh, in a way that I think Yang did. And uh, whether or not he's uh, uh, the best candidate, I think having those ideas at the discussion table for future candidates is good, you know. And um, I think that's something that needs to be talked about. It's gonna it's gonna definitely hit our industry. I think we're gonna have a lot of problems once we start, um, you know, automating. Uh, these chain restaurants and stuff like that start automating transportation. We start automating um, all these services. That's going to just, it's going to take a lot of jobs away, man. There's got to be something in, uh, there's got to be some sort of plan in place. You just can't just continue to say, oh, we're just going to create jobs. We're going to create jobs. The robots are going to catch you and there's not going to be any jobs. I feel like it's important to, you mentioned like this, there's, no one that's willing to take that middle road and say, like, I believe in these and I believe in that ideals. It's just like you either got to be on one side or the other side. And if you're not on one side or the other side, you're no good to me. I, I feel like that conversation is simply built off the fact that if you don't agree with me, I don't like you. And that's just like I feel like that's the state of the world. Like people are so scared. Like if if I disagree with you, like, listen, I disagree with Nick all the time, but we're still friends. I think, right? We're still good, I believe. Hold on, let me unmute myself here. Yeah, more or less. Okay. So, you know, it, it's it's interesting because it's such like an absolute life that we live in. Like, I live in absolutes. We don't agree, so there's no way that we could possibly be friends. Like, it's impossible. So, I, fi I find it exhausting. 
and and it's uh, it's this thing that people are so scared to have just a conversation. I want to learn about the things that I don't know, and if I believe something that maybe I may be misinformed, I want to know more about why I'm misinformed. You know, and instead of that, we get a, a bunch of just no, 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 no. I can't agree with that guy because he doesn't agree with this, but. He agrees with that, and it's – I don't know, man. It's – I think, like, um, politics is a big, like, barrel of fucking fuckery. It's a bunch of shit. Like, I, I I say it all the time. It's not that I don't know if these politicians are good. I just don't trust any of them at this point. And I, yeah. I, feel, I feel like I have so little in common with these people that, you know, this is what leads me to a place that I just – I. I feel uncomfortable with saying that I want to vote for you because I don't trust you at the end of the day. You know? It's it's interesting that you bring up that about and at that point it becomes almost more of like an attitudinal thing than a policy sure. thing. And you know, one of the things that I found interesting about Yang, which was like if I were voting in Democratic primaries, uh, maybe that's who I would have voted for. But what I found most interesting about him was that uh, and Matt, I'm sure you followed him more closely than I did. Uh, he was he and Tulsi Gabbard were the two candidates who seemed most capable of having an exchange with people outside of Democratic Party politics, right? And the strongest objections that I heard among like the conservative class, whether we're talking about like the Ben Shapiro's or the Tucker Carlson's or even like the Libertarians at Reason. The worst that you heard about him was like, eh, I don't know if he's thought this through all the way. But there wasn't this, like, aggressive, like, I can't be your friend kind of thing. He was very willing, and is very willing, to talk to whoever, which I think is what you're saying is missing. Right. Yeah, I mean, open conversation and just, like, not being scared to admit that you're wrong or not being scared to admit, like, you know, I may not know everything I need to know about this and I want to know more. Or maybe even after I know more, I disagree with you and this is where I stand and this is where you stand. But we could still stand together in a room and not fucking hate each other. I don't know. That I, I feel like it's it's almost like uh, I feel almost like grossed out sometimes when I when I hear people talking about politics in general or, you know, how um, uh I don't know. Like, I, like, I, I anyways, I, I can't really talk about it, but I was just told I wasn't allowed to be in a meeting because I fucking, I disagreed with someone. I told someone to go fuck themselves. I'm like, you know, like, I welcome someone telling me to go fuck myself because I want to know why you want to tell me to go fuck myself. Like, tell me what I did wrong, and then I could tell you if I still think I'm wrong or I still think that you're wrong and why, you know, like, it's just, I don't know. It, it if you're scared of being opposed, you should never run for a, a, a public office, right? It, it's, yeah. just, it's just one of those things like uh, opposition and like general discourse is one of those things that it's part of the, the gig, I think, right? Yeah. So anyways, oh, politics make me, I'm like internally exhausted now just talking about it. Like I feel tired. It's the first time all day I've been tired and I've been up since fucking... 5 30 this morning um all right so i think we've covered on a good amount of things uh where do we want to take this now i i feel like 
Matt Hinckley is just like a, there's a box of so many things in there that we haven't even touched yet. What's going on? Um, what, what do you feel like, I mean, sitting where we're sitting now and looking at the industry and <clears throat> me down south and you up north and you live in a different model than I do, what do you feel like the next 12 months is going to look like for all of us? And I think that for everyone, it's a little bit different right now. Um, and I do agree with the fact that w what you said earlier, like, it's going to get worse before it gets better right now. Like, it's going to, if people didn't set themselves up for, a, like, a, a very, like, dark time coming up financially and business-wise, at least on, on my level of, like, the dine-in restaurant, you know, like, regular everyday service thing. If you didn't set yourself up for the worst case scenario right now, I feel like you're in for a really bad next 12 months. What are your overall feelings? Um, I think that I don't think anything's going to return back to normal or any sense of normalcy until there's a vaccine. Um, I'm optimistic that that'll be um, around the holidays. Uh, I think I saw on on. I don't know, Twitter or something, AstraZeneca in uh, Europe had uh, one in um, phase three, which is like, a, you know, testing, I think, kind of 1,000 or 10,000 people or something like that. Um, so, you know, and then I think that there was an order in for like uh, 2 billion of them already. Uh, so, you know, that, that has promise. I think that... Uh, you know, but I don't think I think we're just going to walk around, you know, the, the way we I don't think anything changes until that happens. I think. But once I think that happens, I think it's going to be, you know, uh, somewhat of a return to normalcy. I think when people can walk around and don't they don't feel that threat, uh, you know, that it's like a fucking, you know, it's like walking around with a towel, a wet towel on you. There's always that uh threat that's you know just kind of um you know sticks with you and uh I, I don't i don't think that you know until there's a vaccine i don't think that that goes away and and then you know once there is a vaccine then you know that we have all these other fucking conspiracy theories <laughs> that we're gonna go down and people uh you know are not gonna want to want the vaccine but you know what i think that you know, that's a little bit different for me. You know, I think the whole not wanting to wear a mask thing, like I don't want to fucking wear a mask either, but I wear a mask, you know, because, um, look, I recognize that I can, you know, maybe pass this on to somebody who could pass it on to their parents or whatever. So like, you know, it, like I wear it because I think it's, it's not that big of an inconvenience for, you know, maybe the benefit, uh, that comes out of it. But I think once there's a vaccine, like, I, I don't really see, I see that argument sort of disappearing because if there's a vaccine and they're all, you know, smart people are walking around fucking vaccinated and, and <laughs> the people that don't want to get vaccine don't want to wear a mask. Well, you know, I think we can figure out how that's going to play out. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, like, I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't know that there's going to be any, any return to anything normal until those things happen and i think there's going to be a big pressure to, to wear these masks until there's some sort of uh you know preventative measure in place from from people catching this thing i i feel very similar like i don't 
like the mass thing, obviously, um, I'm more under the thought of like, I want to keep other people safe. And if this is what we are being told, we'll keep other people safe, whether we believe it or not. I think it's just, we just have to all do our part to hopefully end up on the other side of this. And if we don't want to be in the situation that we're in, we just have to hope that this is somewhat of an answer. You know, like, is it an inconvenience? I mean, it's a very fucking small one. You know, like, no one's telling you to walk around with no fucking pants on. Like, for fuck's sake, it's just putting on a fucking mask. It seems relatively simple. It's not like a... I just, I don't find it as like a thing. You know, like, we're hoping that this is like a, a, a means to an end. And we don't really have any, and, and I, I say, I also say this shit all the time, like, the data that's out there, I'm not a fucking scientist or a fucking doctor, and I, I'm not totally sure what it all means, but if they're telling me that hopefully this gets us to the other side of that, then that's my hope, you know? So, you know, anyone who's sitting there and says, you know, and I've had other guests that say, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to wear it or whatever, then you're, you're not going to dine here. And for me... Like, obviously, I need the fucking money, but uh, I, I also am more concerned about my staff and myself and the people around them than I am about the 80 bucks a person that I'm about to get. So, I don't know. It, it just seems pretty pretty small. So, I, I've been trying to, in my head, think of how to put this in the form of a question, but I'll just say the thing, and I think there are questions that are sort of implicit. Over the course of recording all these podcasts with people who are in your business, I think part of the frustration or part of what I hear underlying the frustration, uh, and I think it also exists in other industries, is the general like lack of creativity, right? It's like this constant, they're either going to flip it all off or they're going to turn it on and tease us. Uh, one, like area of life that I think touches a lot of people is schools, right? So I've heard the idea floated around of like, well, if kids have to go to schools, but there are a lot of teachers who are more in those at-risk groups, what if the teachers are Skyping into, into class and the students are coming in and then they have like younger, not so at-risk proctors? I've even thought of like getting in touch with um, uh, the, the high school that I graduated from. I'm a Belen guy. You're a Columbus guy. I happen to have the luxury of, of usually working from home. So I've thought of getting in touch with them and saying, like, hey, listen, if you have some teacher who's over 50, 60 years old or is diabetic or whatever, and you need somebody to sit in that class for free and just make sure the kids don't beat the shit out of each other while they're on Skype on the screen, I'll be that guy. I'm happy to do that. I'll just let me work from that desk and step in if some shit hits the fan. Those kinds of creative solutions are not something that, like, leadership is really talking about it's all like we're gonna find you we're gonna shut your business down or it's a free-for-all and neither of those two things seems like a rational response so i guess if there's a question here it's uh you know in general how do you see that does that sound like it rings true and also what are some things that you wish you saw happening because i know that in food there are people who've gone an extra mile or who've done certain different things like even like uh, the guys at Babe's Meat, just because we brought it up on the podcast before, uh, uh, they implemented some things before the government was mandating it. Uh, so yeah, discuss like 
what are some ways that we could introduce creativity into this? Because it doesn't seem like that exists among the people who are making the rules. Well, I, I think it's interesting what you said is like they're looking in the world of like absolutes, like we're going to fine you, we're going to do this. But it, it also then that leads to the next question is like, how do you enforce those things? How do you enforce like fining someone is a hundred dollar fine, a five hundred dollar fine? Is it this, that or the next? I think it's because we're at a place right now, especially here in Miami. And I don't know about it in Orlando, but that there's so many fucking people that just want to be difficult. And then we have. We also obviously have such a big transient culture, especially in, in like, you know, South Beach and places that are totally built off of tourism, that people that don't give a fuck and they just want to do their thing and they're just like, fuck this, we don't care and we're just going to, we're going to fuck the whole system up. And then there's also the local people, and this happened more towards the beginning of like the end of quarantine, that were like, we don't give a fuck about rules we're going to just slap a bunch of people at the bar and we're just going to worry about making fucking money. And that's why they're working in absolutes, which I would rarely ever say I agree with local politics, but I do agree with the fact that there needs to be a little harsher of a enforcement on people that just want to say, fuck the rules, period. But from a creativity aspect, I, I don't think people are there is because it's such a the issue seems so big right now that all they want to do is that they're just trying to put they're just trying to put out a fire. It's a forest fire. There's a bunch of people and there's a bunch of hoses and they're like, we just want to put out this fire. When really, I feel like the true answer is there's no easy way to put this fire out. The easiest way to put this fire out. And listen, businesses right now are hemorrhaging cash. And this is why every day. In Miami, we see more and more people deciding to close their doors saying, hey, we're, I did it myself. We're going to close X business for X amount of time in an indefinite amount of time because we have X amount of capital and we believe we can make it for the next nine months without making a dollar and just paying fucking rent. You know, like that's really where, where people are at because we don't see, you know, the term, the light at the end of the tunnel. I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. And a lot of people who have decided to close and say, we're going to open in the end of 2020, we're going to open in 2021, they don't see a light at the end of the tunnel either because there is no real solution right now. Because I just everyone, saw uh, Ortonique closed. Oh, man. But that's, you know, like Ortonique is a staple of South Florida. You know, like it's been around for 21 years. It, it kind of, I, I would say that between Ortonique and Normans definitely put uh, the gables on the map. You know, and it's sad to see them go. It really is. But I, I and I feel like I understand the feeling of being exhausted. Like, I have no idea why I have so much energy today. But usually more often than not, every like like two out of three days, I'm exhausted mentally and emotionally from like just the pivot and uh, the the, you know, just trying to move around all the issues, you know, like um, forget about business and food cost and labor cost it's like what's going to happen tomorrow are they going to shut us down how long are we going to shut down for how do we keep our key people etc 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 so i don't know i think the moral of that whole rant is that i don't have a fucking answer for cool. you <laughs> matt anything you want to add here no i i don't um you know i think it's the same 
you know, I, and my, I, I'm plugged in here, but my phone doesn't seem to be finding this uh, charge. So if I lose you here, I apologize. Um, the, uh, I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier, and you're talking about, um, you know, I think that the argument that the people that don't want to wear the masks that, that I've heard anyway is like, you know, if you're at risk, stay at home and, and let everyone else get on with it. Um, you know, I'm young, I'm healthy, I can go to work. Uh, I need to provide, and but the problem is that that, and even if that is a good idea to get the the economy moving and get you know to keep uh, to keep things going, like there, there's nothing in place to take care of those people that that are at home. It, it just seems to be forgotten about. And you know, going back to the uh, to that UBI or having something in place that um, is you know, uh, you know, provides for people. It's like, that makes sense for you to say, okay, I'm, you know, 55 and I've got asthma. I really don't want to go back to the classroom. So like, I'm going to stay home and let a substitute go in. And, and I've got some kind of money coming in from what, from my data being harvested, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, that, that'll take care of it. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm more of a fan for small government. And I, I think that, you know, I don't like seeing, you know, like taxes pay for this stuff. And, and I don't like seeing a lot of these systems that I think are like porky and fatty. Um, but I don't see this as, as that. And I don't see these, um, you know, these government checks that are coming to 1200 bucks coming. I don't I don't know that that is a true like UBI either, because government, like I said before, they don't they're not they're not in the business of making money. They're just distributing your money. And if, if, if they're just going to print money to give people like, that's just like inflation's not going to help the middle class, right? It's just, it's going to hurt the middle class. It's going to hurt the poor class. It's just another way of looking at a tax. So by finding some sort of system where we're uh, like putting a meaningful UBI in place that funds itself in, in a similar way that like, you know, Alaskans are making, you know, like what's sort of you could look at like a UBI is, you know, if you live in Alaska, you get a check every year from the oil that's harvested underneath the, you know, the ground you're standing on. And I think if you look at the way that our data is harvested, um, you know, and, and we find a way to look at that as, you know, it's a commodity that's more valuable than oil right now. So, like, I don't want to give mine away for free. So if we can privatize data so that we can create these kind of UBIs, I think it helps this this problem of, of like getting back to the economy, letting people stay home, feel at, at risk. Like there, there's some some sort of semblance of a system or at least an idea that people can that, you know, people smarter than me can sit at a table and try to mash up and be like, OK, like, how, you know, how can we like how can we make this work? Or you know where are the holes in it? Or let you know get some smart people around the table to to figure it out because um, you know it it's it I don't feel like this is a problem. Like COVID nineteen might go away, but I I don't think that this is the last we're going to see of these kind of problems. Whether it's from automation or COVID twenty or whatever the next fucking bug is that comes around, like I think this is something that you know, we, we have to look at as, uh, you know, a, a possible solution to what's just, I mean, it's, it, what's definitely coming down the pipeline. 
I'm just going to throw it out there that maybe we want to... Are you still having trouble charging your phone, Matt? Um, I, I've got it plugged in, but I don't, I don't see that it's, I okay. keep getting the signs that it's running lower on, on battery. So maybe let's try Let's try to wind down. And then if we have time left over and we've done the wind down, we can keep going. But well, the wind down, the, the whole wind down of this show, uh, we talk about our things. I want to know, I, I'm excited for the end of COVID-19 because I'm excited for the day that Matt Hinckley and I can spar together and throw mitts together. That's really what I'm excited for. That's actually where I thought we might take it. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, in, in my, my bromance with Matt Hinckley and his food, I've always also been enamored with the fact that he also, he, um, I mean, you do much more than I do. I just, I just box, but you do all the things. Matt, Matt I think you, I think muted, you yourself. muted yourself. Nah, I think oh, someone muted me. No. <laughs> I think you just wanted to talk some shit, put the mute button on me, so you could get your run. First of all, I control nothing on this podcast. I just simply show up and talk shit for over an hour. That's pretty much all I do. That's awesome. Yeah, man, I think that'd be great. I'd love to come down there, throw some mitts around, and uh, or you can come up here and yeah, uh, yeah I, I think it'd be fun, man. I love, I love, uh, I love all that stuff, man. Boxing, martial arts, it's. Uh, it's good for your brain. It's good for your oh, body. Hundred percent. So let's. All I was aware of that was that Matt does some uh, jujitsu. Is there? Is there more? Let's. I know. By now, everybody who listens to this podcast knows that you box. Uh, Matt, what are you into? Uh, mainly the jujitsu, man. I do a bit of Muay Thai as well, but uh, I, the jujitsu, I'm. I do a bit more. I'm probably in jujitsu like. Uh, you know, four or five days a week, I do Muay Thai, maybe one or two if I'm not, um, you know, if I'm healthy. I get, uh, I've, I've broken too many bones in Muay Thai <laughs> to make it a regular thing. But uh, I do love both, man. I love watching uh, UFC and uh, all the fighters, man. I like the lifestyle. It's, uh, it's a really good, um, it's good for your brain, it's good for your body, and uh but yeah, man, I look forward to coming down there and throwing mitts. I think it'd be a lot of fun. I, I find that uh, boxing and this, like, the combat sport thing really is extremely good for the brain. Like, it's, you know, that um, the whole thing from the training to the sparring to the understanding of how that the hand-to-hand combat thing, it's just like... I feel so much more at peace a day that I've spent two hours in the gym either sparring or just throwing technical or whatever it is. Like, I feel great. And it's something that I stumbled upon, like, for me. Um, I don't know if you had, like, a background before or whatever, but for me it was just, like, a, a thing that I thought I just want to do for conditioning, but it's, it's really been, like, a whole other, like, a life change for me. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I think it uh, for me, it's like almost like a forced meditation. You get a fucking oh, yeah. for it a little bit. It forces you to kind of like 
forget all the other bullshit that's going on in your life. Forget about sure. bills, forget about everything else. And you're only worried about that strike zone and like, you know, what's, what's coming at you, how you can counter it, how you can attack. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's an hour a day, sometimes two hours a day. It's just like uh, you can check out from everything else and just, you know, protect your protect your melon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I sparred um, uh, Friday. It was Friday morning. Yeah, Friday morning. Did seven rounds. And, you know, it's like, um, I, I don't know, like I, I caught like somewhat of a bloody nose on uh, on Friday. And it's just like, you know, like it's this feeling of like you got to protect yourself and you have to be completely in the moment. And in today's world, we're so we're pulled in so many different fucking directions, you know, and there's so much distraction. I always go back to the, the Kevin Costner movie, the For Love of the Game is like clear the mechanism and just like you focus on one thing and your one thing is seven rounds or eight rounds or ten rounds or whatever it is. And you're working on your technique and you're working on your strike and you're working on your combinations and whatever it may be. And, and it's just like, it's just you, you know? And I, I, I find, like you said, it's like that forced meditation. I find so much peace in that. And yeah, like shit, we sparred in the fucking second floor basement of the garage, you know, like with music blasting at six fifteen in the morning. But it was like, it's this moment of just like, uh, you have nothing else to worry about. Just this. And, and, I find a lot of peace in that. You know what I mean? So anyways, I, um, I, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I know it's like a crazy fucking time. Um, I got a lot of love for you. I, I, I super respect what you do. So thank you so much for doing this. And I cannot wait to go back to Orlando to eat your food. Oh man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, bro. I love what you're doing down there. He mute himself again. I think so, yeah, because it's telling me to ask Matt. ask him to unmute. Matt, stop muting yourself, for fuck's sake. He's muted again. What's happening here? This is – he's not even drinking. What there we go. Drinking? Okay. I just, you, I got muted by the host, man. I just, no, no. Nick is the host. It's all it, Nick's fault. The button that comes up for me is ask to unmute. I have to ask you to unmute. <laughs> that's, what I, that's the button that I got. I think there's a conspiracy going on. That's what it is. <laughs> they're coming. They're coming after the Yang Gang. Yeah. That's what it is, man. Yeah, that's what it is. Um, uh, go ahead, Nick. Do all the things. Yeah, yeah. Do. We'll do. We'll do the things. So, um, at this point in the show, we get into our parting recommendations. This is where everybody recommends a thing. As you will see, Matt, I'm predicting that Mike still doesn't understand what a recommendation is. Instead of a recommendation, he'll just opt to go on a totally unrelated rant, which is great. Uh, but recommend a thing that you ate, watched, read, did, whatever it might be. Um, if you want to go first, you can. Otherwise, we can start with Mike. and No, start with Matt. Start with Matt. All right. Um, I've, I've been watching a, a TV show on, I think it's on a bunch of platforms, man. You can find it on Netflix. You can find it on uh I think uh, Hulu has a bunch of seasons and maybe Amazon called Alone. That's, uh, um, I normally don't like any – I won't watch any reality TV, none. Um, but but this one is uh, – it, it's I think it's like 10 people that they take and they put all of them 
in these really remote uh, locations by themselves. Uh, they're, they're just alone with a little bit of camera equipment. And uh, they put up a half a million bucks uh, for whoever can last the longest. They're each allowed to bring like 10 items of like bushcraft stuff, axe, knife, uh, like, uh, like a flint and steel kind of fire starter, sleeping bag. Um, and they just go out and build these primitive camps, try to live off the land. Um, but there's a there's a lot of cool life lessons in the show um, about um, you know just being alone with yourself, and that's usually what what gets the people. Like most of them, it seems like uh, can can find the food, and um, and it's usually the solitude and the loneliness that people realize uh, that you know there's a lot of life lessons to be taught by the show. That people realize that you know the family is what it's all about and the friends are what it's all about and they walk away from the money just to get back to that pretty short time man so it's a, it's a pretty cool um show that, that i think has a lot to offer like spiritually and um but there's some pretty cool stuff in there too about uh like how to live off the land how to survive how to set up traps how to you know fish or hunt uh how to build primitive shelters with hand tools and stuff but that, I've been watching that. It's been, a, you know, like a nice break. Watch that when I come home from work. But it's a pretty cool show, man. I, I checked out if, if you haven't watched it. That's a good really stuff. solid recommendation. Like, he put thought into that, I think. Yeah, that was good. I'm all over it. Yeah, I'm, I may actually watch that show. Uh, so I'm going to recommend two things. Okay. They're both movies. One of them I saw. The other one I have not seen yet. Uh, so how are you going to re- recommend something Because the trailer seen? makes me very confident. Okay. The first <laughs> the first is a short film that I did watch. It's 8 minutes long. It's called Cautionary Tales. Uh the YouTube title says it won awards. I don't know what awards it won. Uh but it's it's basically a support group. This guy goes to a support group where people have done things that your parents warned you against doing. I'll give you an example like one of the secondary characters went blind jacking off. Uh, <laughs> so, cautionary tales. You can watch it on YouTube. It's free, eight minutes long. The other one is called Rubber, <laughs> and Rubber, uh, I think, is like six dollars to watch on YouTube. And I will pay these six dollars, even though I have not had an income during COVID. Uh, and Rubber is about a tire, like a rubber car tire. That goes on a killing spree. So, <laughs> what the fuck? The police, the the part in the trailer that got me was number one, it uses its telekinetic powers to make people's head explode. So that's awesome. Uh, and also, there's a there's a, a scene that shows up in the trailer where uh, the cops are huddled around another tire, and cop number one is like, "Hey, this is what our suspect looks like. Any questions?" and one of them says, uh, yeah, I have a question. Is this one we're looking for also black? So I am hooked. I am all in on rubber. Oh, uh, I'm going to watch that movie. I will pay $6, and it's going to be great. Oh. I actually sent it to Joaquin. It was very relevant to him. <laughs> oh, Joaquin said dominate. I, um, uh, I don't really have any like recommendations. I have a couple of statements, though. <laughs> uh, parting statements. I... Um, 
the last like uh, five or six days or whatever, well, my I sent my whole staff at Chugs to go get tested for the Rona. So I've just been there like alone uh, with one of my other staff members that had been tested and already came back negative. And um, it, w- I, it was a lot of like uh, I gained a lot of perspective again because I was just getting back to that whole like that daily grind of like working a station and setting up your station and um you know like again i woke up super early this morning and i was there and i was listening to music and i was setting up my station i was very happy you know like i was in kind of like in the situation that made me love what i do for a living you know and i mean we are dreadfully slow (laughs) i mean everything in miami is dreadfully slow there's no one that's like absolutely annihilating it right now um and, you know, we've been slow and it's just kind of like I've just been like cooking things for fun and, you know, um, no pretense, you know, and, and, and I say that in a weird way because when I cook things at like Ariette or Nave, you know, they have to be at a certain level. And, you know, at Chug's like we're making breakfast sandwiches and we're slanging eggs and we're making pancakes and it's just like a bunch of shit that I fucking love, you know, and it, I have a lot of fun doing and. In that whole like process, I, I really thought about the the mental health aspect of kind of like the world and what we're all going through right now. And, um, you know, after Chugs closed yesterday, I, I came back to Ariette and I had a, a couple meetings or whatever. And then I, I met with my chef at Ariette and we talked a little bit about just kind of like where things are going and where they're heading and where I think that the city is going to like what's going to unfold in the city over the next few weeks. Cause I feel like we're almost set up for another imminent shutdown of the world, I would say. Um, and you know, I talked to him a lot about what he was feeling and like what he was going through and then what I was going through and just kind of like being very open about, you know, it's, it's a heavy moment and it's okay to understand how heavy it is and it's okay to say that it's very difficult you know and i am very happy that uh for the last like five days i found happiness in making breakfast sandwiches you know like it made me realize like i i still do very much love my job and i very much like love what i do for a living and i love the purity of it and i love like I mean, shit that's just fucking delicious, you know, like you're not spending 45 minutes like plating up a dish or coming up with a foam or, you know, whatever. And um, and that purity and that happiness is really to make it to the other side of this and to be able to continue doing what we do for a living. I feel like that shit's very important. And being able to like have that conversation openly right now. If you have friends in whatever fucking industry it is, I think it's totally okay to ask them how they're doing and to really like be open about how you're feeling at the moment and to not find um, like uh, that you're being soft and saying that, you know, I feel some kind of way at this moment is I think I think fucking crucial, you know. So that's my part parting statement, I guess I would say. Good stuff. I think I, so. I think that's that counts as a recommendation. I guess so. Do the thing that makes you happy even during COVID. Sure. I'll that's me throwing you a huge bone. I'm very pleased that there was something like a recommendation this time. We should make that a shirt. 
That's a running theme in our in our texting is what should be on shirts. Um, so with that, we'll wrap it up. Before I'm, I'm also very pleased that your phone hasn't died during oh, this, this thing. Good. So we will uh, wrap this thing up. You've been listening. Oh, uh, do your shameless plugs, Matt. Tell people where they can find you and the things you do. Uh, you can find me uh, at Hinkley Meats on Instagram. H-I-N-C-K-L-E-Y-M-E-A-T-S. Uh, HinkleyMeats.com website. The website will bring you to all the social media stuff, but those two are where we're most active. You can find us on Facebook slash Hinkley Meats. Um, and you can find us at uh, East End Market in Orlando, 3201 Corn Drive. Come by, say hi, and uh, we'll, we'll get you fed. I'd like to leave you with this last question. We are both in agreement that pineapple on pizza is a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. For sure. Because we had Parting somebody, recommendation. We had somebody chime in, right? Who I think works with Jason yeah. Arroyo already already chimed in. Yeah. Oh, he did. Yeah. He's a barbarian, man. He'll come around one day. One day we'll have a refined palate on that kid. <laughs> Matt, so, thanks so much. Thanks so much for you, Jason. If you're listening. Uh, so uh, you've gonna, been uh, listening. First pineapple <laughs> There you go. You've been listening to Pancom Podcast. It's a podcast sandwich. You can find us on all of... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I think people should follow us on the Patreon thing, right? Like the Patreon? What is that yes. thing? Yes. That's, so, uh, that's my recommendation. Gonna... Donate your money to the Patreon. Hold on. It's not a donation. All right. Give your money to the Patreon. Yeah. Okay. So here's... here's how we'll, we'll do that in the plugs. Follow Pancom Podcast on all the things at Pancom Podcast. It's a podcast sandwich. Also, if you're into what we're doing enough to throw even as little as a buck a month at us. Uh, it's patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com, slash mag D-A-D-E-M-A-G. Uh, that gets you some exclusive stuff, not only Pancom Podcast-related, but all the other things that live on dademag.com. Uh, and also, Patreon recently added a function that uh, allows us to offer merch to people who contribute at various levels. Uh, so that's coming soon. We will probably have uh, mugs and shirts and other stuff. Thank you, Matt, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Matt, I'll see you in the Twitterverse. All right, brother.